So a few months ago, I put out to the listeners on Instagram at Vertical Playpen for questions that I could answer on the podcast. And one of the questions that got asked was, what is the difference between a trainer in the US and a trainer in the UK? Now, my assumption is I was asked that question because I am originally from England. However, I can't really answer that question because I've only ever been a trainer here in the US. So I reached out to Steve Woods, who is the technical director at Vertex Instructor Training based in England. And we chatted about some of these potential differences. Ultimately, we found out we have a ton in common. And so this is gonna be two episodes Here is the first one, an introduction to Steve and his thoughts on training. I wonder if you experience this too. I I tend to find from a training perspective, when I'm doing like, let's say the basic training, the the introductory trainings, and we get the youngest, younger people in, I find those those kind of minds, those kind of blank slates, easier to teach than someone, let's say, who's had 30, 40 years of experience and then comes to a training for, let's say, a refresher. Because there's a lot of like potential unlearning and sometimes resistant to change that I notice in some of the older participants. Do you, do you have that same experience? Um, I, th- I think, yeah, I think so. Um... You know, they, they're often they've been doing something like it or something similar for a long time. So they're kind of, you know, for want of a better phrase, they're set, they're set in their ways. And, you know, what's what's wrong with what I've been doing? And you're coming in and saying, well, here's another way. And, and I recommend this. And it's like, well, hold on a minute. I've been doing it this way for however long, you know, and whether that's a skill or a, a, a way of working or a use of language or, or an approach or whatever it is, it's what's wrong with what I'm doing. And, you know, all good companies like ours, we will have just a, a, a broader view of what's going on out there in the industry and they'll often be fixed in that smaller view you know where they work in their particular clients and so we will bring that maybe broader view knowledge and say well you know what i'm showing you is based on our experiences from all these other places but for them they may not have an understanding that what they're doing you know there are easier or better or more efficient or methods of, of, of doing it i mean one of the examples i can give you from training at a a place about four five six years ago something like that and i went there to do some training and the what they were using some fall arrest lanyards to access you know you'd call them lobster claws on the on the on the staples and the on the things and we we wouldn't clip onto staples in in europe now anyway we've not done that for a decade two decades or more but they they were still clipping on the staples and he had a set of industrial fall arrest lanyards and i recognized what they were and i said can i just have a look at those do you mind and he went no no yeah yeah. and i unzipped it and checked the date and they were about five six seven years beyond the manufacturer's lifetime you know these were really old and i said look you know that they're, they're a bit old those ones can i show you why don't you just use the ones we've got over here we've got some new ones we can use use for the training course and he goes oh thank you thank you thank you thank you and then but come the assessment day he went back to his old ones again even though we tried to show him they were they were out of date even though we tried to show him that there were new ones and maybe there were newer methods when it came to that moment of stress when it came to that thing of oh i'm, I'm a bit tense now he reverted straight back to his previous way of doing it and you wouldn't get that with somebody who's fresh into the industry at all that person's comfort zone was those lanyards and when he experienced stress he was straight back into his comfort zone and it's the same if you're trying to teach them a new technique or a new way of working or a new review skill or whatever it might be you're, you're showing them that here's another way but when they get a little bit tense or a little bit stressed they're just going to revert into that comfort zone which has been developed over 
you know, several decades in many cases. And it's, you know, it's hard to reshape and reposition that or to encourage them to do so. The training methodology by which you, you get them on board or get them on side is a gentle approach rather than an abrupt approach. And, it, and I, I think sometimes that resistance that comes in from someone who's maybe had more experience when they go to a trainer, their expectation, they're almost coming in defensive, assuming yeah. this person is going to tell me yeah. I'm doing it wrong and I'm going to have to tell them I've been doing this longer than they've been alive. Like sometimes that kind of statement comes into play. And I think when you go in with that ease of just asking clarification, asking questions, um, yeah. you know, I've had you know, similar experiences where someone has said to me, this is the way I've been doing it. And I've, I've just said, well, let me just give you an alternative way. You know, I'm not saying what you do is wrong. I think of even, I think of even, um, belay technique. So hands up belaying in, in the States uh, got the name slip, slap, slide. If the, if you're using an, a tubular aperture device and you, you want to ensure that saying in the break, that's really not going to function. However, if you're doing it with a, a Munter hitch, or you're even doing a standing hip belay or something into that nature, then that would be the appropriate belay. And I think that sometimes people go in too heavy and hard on wrong. That's the bad. That's that's, and then you know you're going to get people resistant to that. Yeah. So, so one of the things we say is, is um, there isn't necessarily the, the right way or the best way. There's lots of ways you can do everything now. And of course, as we progress in, in the industry, it becomes more and more and more ways of doing it. But we just say whatever method you have, whether you're using a plate, uh, you know, a monster hitch, whether you're doing some kind of, you know, team belaying, tipping everybody to a rope and walking backwards, whether you're using a device like a, like a Grigri or a Trango Cinch or whatever it is. But whatever you're doing, it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It's just if, if you're using that method... What are the what are the good things about it? What are the benefits? What are the pluses? And how can we make absolutely make the most out of those? You know, but then also, what are the negatives and what are the pitfalls? And how do we how do we either work around them or or how do we manage those? You know, so we can use all of these things safely. And then when you're showing them and say, well, let me show you this way over here that we, that we now use, and these are the benefits behind it, and these are the pitfalls behind it. And we often let people choose, so it's not fixed. You know, and 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 the industry. You know, we went through certainly in Europe. We 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 you know like like everybody else, we started off with hand tied bits of rope as cows tails and just clipping on with carabiners. And we we then moved to sort of some industrial equipment. We moved to belay devices like the Grigri away from a, a, a belay plate or a figure of eight descender. And we moved to using ground anchors. We sort of progress and progress and progress. And one of the things that we often do now when we go to places is we show them some of the stuff from back in the sort of 80s and the 90s. So we're, we actually have days now where we make people, we don't make them, but we, we encourage them to tie a Studebaker. Um, which in the UK is like, well, what are you doing? You're, you know, you're crazy. And it's like, no, look, you can do this. You know, it's okay, but just be aware of blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and they find that for a lot of people, it's like a big eye opener. Really yeah. It's like, okay, it's okay to do what I'm doing. It's like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to do what you're doing, but just be aware of the, this side of it as well as the side you value and the, the side you enjoy when you use it. Let's, let's be aware of this side as well. It's, it's wonderful hearing you speak because it's, it, so much mirrors the stuff that I do uh, in terms of, you know, I do most of my trainings now, I'll do some version of the history of belaying where I'll, you know, I'll do that kind of model out. Let's take it from the very bare bones. I just have mm. a rope all the way to I have some more gear. And I think that from, from my perspective, I always consider that and the way that we end up teaching is we want people to be thinking practitioners, okay, that they can analyze whatever they've got in front of them. They can see the scenarios, they can see the gear and make appropriate decisions based on their information rather than doing something just because Phil said or doing something because Petzl said it on their manual or, you know, actually understanding the whys behind stuff and maybe some of that origin with, 
it's a really powerful thing to be able to take that historical perspective and draw it in because the way that you would belay on a on let's say a black diamond ATC would be similar to how you would belay with a grigri and actually the technique that you would use with the ATC is really helpful when it comes to using yeah. a grigri um, because you understand the braking you understand that keeping the, the rope in a certain direction is helpful because you've got yeah. used to dealing with none of the camming mechanism that a grigri would have so I think all of those kind of steps, I think, is, is an almost crucial or critical component um, to the training pathway. So we don't always get that opportunity. I would say I put our training into, well, it's quite good, there's all sorts of things we do, but I would say some of the training we're doing is they get taught a way. You know, we might go to um, a holiday park where they have really young staff coming in. This is not a career for them. They show no interest in, in it outside of their place of work. They don't climb as a hobby. You know, so them, this is a weekend job, some cash in the pocket, I want to go out and be with my friends. And it, it literally is that. Um, and so for those types of people, or those types of clients, we will have, this is how you do it. We still deliver it in a, in, a, in, a, in a supportive way, but it's a case of, no, this is how you do it. You, you use this device, you use this method, there's no choice. And then we have the other side of it when we are doing much more in line with what you just said, which is, hey, there are these options. You know, So when you've got this group coming in, what's the best option? You know, you've got a a, a, a a group of 11-year-olds who are having a birthday party experience. You've got a group of teenagers who are getting getting ready to go away on their first camping expedition. Um, or you've got a group of managers who are, who are here to learn about the, you know, the leadership models that they want to install into their business. What methods are you going to use? And and of course, it's not always obvious, isn't it? You, you, you know, with the managers, you might go to the team belay method, actually, you know, with, with just a rope with them all tied to it. Um, whereas a lot of people would think, well, that's going to be for the little kids and, 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 you know, and so on and so forth. So yeah, we do do both sides of that. And, and increasingly we're trying to do, go back to, I would say, and do much more of the, these are your options. These are the, the, the harnesses you are available to you. These are the devices available to you. These are the, uh, the, the, the belay systems you can set up that are available to you. What's going to be right with the people you've got in these conditions to get today the time you have and and you know what you're trying trying to get from the session itself that's the sort of training where you know our kind of heart is if you like but the flip side of that is we've got people that just want these people to do this here Hey friends, so I thought I would jump into the middle of this conversation to let you know that High Five is hiring a new trainer. So as we're talking about all things training in this episode and you're interested and you believe in the philosophies that we talk about and you would love to learn more about the potential for working alongside myself here at High Five, then I'm going to throw into the description of this episode a link where you can find out more about the application process. However, I would say that if you're interested, even if it's a slight interest and you just like to know more about it, then please either email me at pbrown at highfiveadventure.org or go to Instagram at Vertical Playpen and you can just send me a message and I'm happy to chat on there as well about the potential of working alongside me as a trainer at High Five. And let's continue with this episode and this conversation between me and Steve. The thing I'm kind of interested in is your origin, Steve. 
Because the reality for me, and I know most of the people I've interviewed in the US, have a very similar kind of upbringing, aka they interacted with a summer camp experience maybe here in the States. But coming from England myself, I know summer camp isn't a thing really. So what, for you, how what was your introduction to ropes courses? And then even how did you make that decision to make it a career? Well, I, I never, I never made it a decision to make it a career, and I think that's a common theme you've probably heard as well. Yeah, you're still in um, it, just random. And, yeah. and literally, yeah. most things in in the in the world of ropes courses in my life have been coincidental, by accident, or just jumping in two footed and seeing what you know, whatever. Let's just give it a go and see what happens at the other end of it. But I do talk about the sort of the, you know origin story. It sounds like I'm on some, some kind of X Men movie, doesn't it? <laughs> Superhero ropes yeah. ropes course origins. Yeah. You yeah. fell in a vat of rope. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um. The first time I climbed a tree, actually, I was I was I was I was being looked after by my my mum was at work, and I must have been before I was at the sort of even the main school. So I was probably like four or five years old or something like that, just going to school half a day or something. And a neighbour was looking after me, and they lost me; they couldn't find me. And apparently, I was up the top of a tree. So even from a really young age, I was out exploring and climbing, and you know, seeking those kind of adventures. But I always remember this, and. I tell this story to brand new instructors. One of the things I say to brand new instructors is if you have no choice about whether you're going to impact on people, the only choice you have is how. And so pay attention to who you are, what you're saying, how you're behaving. Just pay a little bit of attention because even if it's only a little bit, you know, that's going to shape shape them as they move forward. And of course, it could be those amazing wow moments where the impact is imme- immediately obvious and they're obviously few and far between. Somebody took me to, on a school activity holiday, which in, in the UK is really common at about sort of 11, 12, 13 years old, you'll go on an activity holiday for a week. We call them multi-activity holidays. And you'll go to an outdoor center and you'll do archery and walking and climbing and, you know, raft building and team games and all this kind of stuff. And I came to a place called Dancing Ledge, which is not that far from me now. So I'm almost back there now, really. It's only about three or four miles over that way. Um, And it's this climbing venue on the coast. And I was 11 years old and they took me climbing. Now, what that individual instructor has no knowledge of, because I can't remember their name, um, but something happened to me on that day, something about my experience. And of course, I believe strongly that it's led by not just the experience of climbing, but by the way that person enabled me to have my experience. And another instructor, I could have had a terrible experience and I might be doing something completely different by now. But from that moment onwards, I wanted to go climbing. And so I sought it out. I found a youth center, uh, a community youth center that had like an outdoor club. And I started climbing regularly there. And by the time I was 16, I was out climbing outdoors. I was fixing my own protection. And it was just completely mad passion of mine and that was it so that's how I ended up going into the outdoors I left school at 16 I went and did an outdoor very basic outdoor ed college course one of the first in the UK at the time um, and started working in the same outdoor activity centers not the same one but the same type that I went to when I was 11 years old so the direct consequence of how that instructor was with me encouraged me to climb that day I believe genuinely led me to that point and so I started working in outdoor centers and I ended up back here in Dorset, where I am now, um, in a small seaside town called Swanage. A few miles away from Swanage was a, a company called Ropes Course Developments Limited, RCD. And that was owned by two people at the time called Nick Moriarty and Steve Bolton. Now, Nick Moriarty might be a name that people have heard of because Nick, essentially, certainly in, in Europe and the UK, was one of the key and lead figures and, and still is to some extent. He's still on the board of Urca at, at, this, at this moment in time. But Nick really fostered that professionalism in the industry, the the, the design, the construction, the, you know, really pushed it forward and uh, and really took, you know, he became on the board of Urca in the sort of mid 
2000s and really took that forward. He was a the convener of um, our standards committee when we wrote the European standard and I joined Nick on that committee as well. So I was working at this outdoor center and they said, oh, can you become an instructor at that ropes course up the road? And that was in 1996. And I had no idea what it was. You know, we'd never heard of these things. I had no idea what it was. So I became an instructor. And then one day they called me up and said, oh, Steve, we, we need some help running a, a new training course for new instructors where you join in. And I was like, yeah, okay then. <laughs> and so off I went and I helped them on one course. And and the, literally the next time they employed me was they sent me off to Germany to go and run a training course in Germany by myself. And that was it. That was it. I'm now a ropes course trainer. And that was in 1998. And I've been doing it ever since. And I got to 2002. I've been working for RCD full time at that point. Um, and I've been all over the place and done some amazing stuff because the industry at that time was, you could just do mad, mad stuff because there was no oversight there was no standards there was no it literally you could do whatever you wanted and my introduction to the industry was just go there steve and do some training <laughs> just okay i'll do that i'll go there and do some training and you know and whatever we did on that training course happened and then um nick and steve encouraged me to set my own company up so they actually encouraged me to create vertex instructor training limited which is the business i, I still have with a business partner now with emma uh, to this day and that was 20 years ago this year so in 2002, so 20 years ago this year, it, I started my own company and it's just gone, the industry's just gone from this sort of, certainly in, in the UK, fairly niche thing now to really it's quite mainstream. You know, we've got the same as it is in, in North America. We've got ropes courses, you know, in shopping centers and in, in, in private companies and military establishments and schools and it's just absolutely everywhere. And I just happened to get in at that point when it was just flourishing and I got invited um, again through Nick. I owe, I owe Nick quite a lot. So Nick helped me and invited me onto the British Standards Committee called the BSI. And then we got involved in writing the European Standard and going to all the meetings around Europe to write the EN Standard. Through that, I met people in Germany and joined the European Ropes Course Association through my volunteering there. Got got asked to help write the training standards for ERCA. And it just sort of grew and, and, and grew and grew and grew. So never having a sort of desire to, to to get into the industry really and no sort of idea of a career path it's sort of one opportunity where you just jump in with both feet and and, and see what happens after the other and after the other so somebody took me climbing age 11 at dancing ledge which is just over there and here we are now you know sort of running a company been going for 20 years i've traveled all over the world i mean everywhere i've been to the falkland isles i've been all over i've been to egypt i've been to iceland i, I i've been uh, to India, tra running training courses and working and volunteering over in India. And um, yeah, it's just been this incredible sort of crazy, hectic lifetime really. And and you have the joy, you know, and I, I you know, still feel this is the most privileged part of the job is going 20 miles down the road to a small scout center and working with them. You know, I can go and work for big companies now if I want to, but actually the joy is that is working with those young people as we first started talking about, you know, who are fresh faced, who are full of energy and full of life and, you know, just want to just want to do this fun job because that's what it is at its heart, isn't it? It's this amazing fun job, which actually can have a, an impact on people in, in a way which I think other act, outdoor activities can do, but aren't so, and I use this term carefully, maybe aren't so inclusive, you know, whereas I think ropes courses are just that little bit more inclusive and you know, and, that, and that's what we do. So yeah, from age 11 to the age of uh, 48. It's fascinating because you brought up that 11-year-old yourself. And I think that there's a book that studies play by Dr. Stuart Brown. In it, he talks about play histories. How whatever you experiences of passion and play that you had as a child often has this massive impact on what makes you comfortable, makes you passionate when you're an adult. I had a very 
similar, but it was I was much older. I was in my early twenties when I came to the states, and I and there was someone similar who there was something in their facilitation, something in the way that they guided us through something that really resonated, made me feel heard, made me feel valued in some of the stuff I was asking. I was asking lots of questions. And because of that, that's the way I want to teach. I want to train the way that that person trained me because I don't think they had and they knew. Thankfully, I was able to, this is very, this is that same similar situation. I've moved all over the States and I was in a different state at the time this guy trained me. I had a conversation with someone similar and I, and they were, they were saying they couldn't remember the person. And I was like, I actually know the name of the person that impacted me. Maybe I'll try to find them. And so I tracked, tracked him down and he lives 20 minutes from my house where I am right now. I, I found his number. I was like, that seems like a familiar code number. I called him and it was one. He had no realization that the impact he'd had on me. And I haven't yeah. seen him in 15 years. So it was kind of like those kind of things. So based on that experience, and you've sort of elicited to it slightly, what's for you the key essentials when you're training? What What's like the foundation of your trainings beyond the technical stuff? Uh, pe- people, simple people is that. You're dealing with human beings and you're, you know, it doesn't matter who they are. They, they want to pass at the end of it, you know. So, and, if, and if you enable them to do what they want to do, obviously remembering that there's a there's a there's a serious side to what we do as well. You know, that accidents can and do happen, and we've got to, you know, part of that is making sure somebody's competent to move into the next stage of their development. But um, you know, remembering that they're people at the end of the day, and they're human beings, and they've got lives and families, and who we are and how we are when we're with them, you know, does have a direct consequence to their life. Not just in the moment of that training course, but even when they go home at the end of every day, or when they come back again in again in the morning, and the consequence of that. We we did a little paper exercise at one of our conferences. We'd run a sort of industry conference over here in the UK every year, and we got everybody in the room to do a bit of a paper exercise about you know how many staff do you have, how many people do they work with a day, how many years you've been operating, and and you soon get this sort of this exponential mm. number growth. And mm. you know, and I I take up Vertex. We're, we're talking about millions of people every year that are, are, are impacted on as a direct consequence of the training that we've done. If not hundreds of millions of people, it's just it's just crazy the numbers. It's fast and. You know, once you start looking at it that way, it's remembering that you're dealing with people who are then going to go on and be with people. You know, so it's it's that humanistic side of it. I can show you a knot, but it's what you then do with that in relation to those other people. It's how they employ it, um, and I think that's the most imp- it's the most important thing. How do you implement that in a training? How do you pass that message on? Do you have a strategy? Is it is it is it wrong? I don't know. I don't think there. No, there isn't a strategy. No. When, what, myself personally, it's about. It's a little bit of storytelling, but not too much. I think sometimes trainers can get pulled into that a little bit too much and tell all their stories. You know, I, I, I you know, tell lots of stories, but I think it's a little bit about storytelling, but it's about being the right person as well and showing some care, showing that you genuinely care. Um, and I'm going to use the term love, and I don't mean it in that sort of soppy sense. I mean that genuine sort of love between one human and, and, and another. And I think if you genuinely live by that and you, and you are that, then that's the greatest influence you have upon other people. And we play games with them on certain topics and, 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 and everything else. But I think it's more about who you are and how you are when, when you're with them. If you're genuinely that way, I think that has the greatest influence upon them. But we, um, we have a team of trainers that go out and deliver training and, and we don't ask any of them to do anything a certain way. We allow all of them to be who they are. You know, when they're out there, their personality, their own philosophy needs to shine through. Otherwise, they're not being genuine to themselves, and it affects it affects them in their jobs. So we don't have a certain strategy on that. You know, we might cover basic concepts, which I'm sure 
you know, been going around for a long time. Now we might cover comfort zones. We might cover something like challenge by choice or, but really it's about who you are and how you are just being genuinely living that way when you're with them. So this brings us to the end of this episode. If you enjoyed the conversation so far, well, guess what? The conversation continues next week. So be sure to come back next week where you'll hear more of a conversation between me and Steve. If you like this, please share, follow, listen, listen. You're already listening. Uh, tell others to listen. And remember to go to at Vertical Playpen on Instagram if you're there, where you can reach out personally to me. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you on the next one. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playpen. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try Thanks for giving. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs>